Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit of God, what comes to your mind? For some of you, do you think of the old translation, the Holy Ghost? Uh, Do you perceive the Spirit to be a bit mystical? I don't know about you, but sometimes I've seen over the top of a body of water as I'm driving by this kind of fog, right, at dusk or at dawn and I don't know about you, but at times I think, oh, it's kind of like the Spirit, it feels like in my head a little bit, right? For some of you, is the conversation about the Spirit, is it a little eerie? Uh, Maybe a little confusing or mysterious? Uh, Maybe for some of you, you think, hey, when we talk about the Spirit, there's real power there. What is your perception today? What is your understanding of the Holy Spirit? That is really really important. It's a critical question for us to answer. And throughout the book of Acts, we will be introduced to the realities of the Holy Spirit and His work among genuine believers, among those who are genuine followers of Jesus. And what I want you to note with me today as we walk through these first 13 verses of chapter 2 is this. As believers, the same power that was displayed at Pentecost from the Holy Spirit, that power is available to you. You can experience, partake of that power. Now, remember, as we walk through uh, this book of Acts together, Luke, this is the second book that he's written. It's really, if you think about it, it's the only book in our New Testament that has a follow-up book to it. And that's what Luke is doing here in Acts 2. It's the ongoing account of the divine work of Jesus and what he, as he tells us in chapter 1, began to teach. What he was doing and what he was teaching. The theme of the book as a whole is that you will receive power. We're going to see that here in chapter 2, right? You will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you and you'll be witnesses to the ends of the earth. We'll see that kind of fleshed out through the rest of the book, right? That, that, that happens, it begins here in chapter 2, and, and it'll develop throughout. The purpose is twofold, and, and we need to remember this. This begins in Luke's gospel. In chapter 19, he, he reminds us, Jesus offers salvation to men. But the second thing that we see is the work The ongoing work of Jesus, what he began in his earthly life, it continues through the power of the Spirit, through the followers of Jesus, through the ministry of the Spirit in the lives of his followers. That work continues. And we see it beginning in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7, moving to Samaria and Judea, chapters 8 to 12, and to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. That outline is gorgeous for this book, right? It just makes sense. 
begins in Jerusalem. We'll see it today. This is where it all starts here in chapter 2. And then it moves all the way to the ends of the earth, which for Luke, the ends of the earth happen to be Rome. And we'll talk about Rome here in a couple of minutes. So again, as we walk through this note, please, please catch this. As believers, the same power that's displayed in this account by Luke, that power is available to you and to me as followers of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. This power is available to us. Now, first, the first thing that we'll see, verses 1 to 4, is the miraculous coming of the Holy Spirit. And listen to me very, very carefully. Uh, There are divergent systems of teaching that take an account like this in chapter 2 and try and make it the norm. Listen to me. Much of what we see going on in Acts is not normative. It's not the norm. Remember, Luke is describing. He's not prescribing. Luke is not anticipating that you and I today in this room will hear a loud rushing sound, right? And then we'll be filled with the Spirit. Listen, there's a reason that that changes, but that changes through the history of the church. So the first 30 years are different we got to, we've got to understand that. The first 30 years are different. And we'll talk about that and why in a moment. So, first we have the miraculous coming. In verses 1 to 4, again, you can kind of see it here. Verse 1, you have the day of Pentecost. It arrives, and the believers, at least 120 that he's already described back in chapter 1, they were all together in one place. Now, a couple of things are important. Number one. The Feast of Pentecost is what we're talking about. This is the Feast of Harvest. Now, for you and I as believers, when we talk about Pentecost, our minds immediately go to this day, to chapter 2 in Acts. Listen to me, that is not, that is not uh, what Luke is writing about. Luke is actually writing about a Jewish celebration, a Jewish festival, a Jewish feast. This Jewish feast also called in our Old Testament the Festival of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. It has become, it has been renamed by Greek Jews as the Feast of Pentecost. That's where the name comes from. So this day of Pentecost is actually a celebration in which a large group of Jews are gathered. There were three feasts on the calendar that Jews had to return to Jerusalem to celebrate at the temple. So guess what? We've got a lot of Jews that have gathered in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Right? It's almost like God planned this, you know? And uh, he did. He did. Right? And uh, so they're gathered for this feast. This feast is 50 days after Passover. So Luke has told us already, Jesus is with the disciples coming and going for 40 days. So in theory, 10 days previous, in chapter 1 of Acts, the disciples stood on the Mount of Olives and they watched Jesus ascend back to heaven. 10 days later, 10 days later, start of the feast, start of the celebration of harvest. And that's where they've gathered, and that's what's going on. 
uh, as this section begins. Fifty days later, ten, Jesus is gone. Where are the disciples? Where are the followers of Jesus? 120, they are still together. They're still gathered. Now, one of the pieces that's interesting, if you look ahead to verse 2, he says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, there is some debate, and sometimes it amazes me the debate that we that we get into on some of these things. A couple of things. Number one, if we have 120 people gathered, that is a very, very large first century house. Right? I, I don't know, I don't know too many of us that could get 120 people into our house. Now, some of that is because their roofs were flat and they would kind of meet or gather on the roof. And so there may be a little more room because of that. And potentially that's what's going on. Some have actually suggested Stephen in chapter 7, he calls the temple the house of God. So some have argued that is potentially what he's describing here. They actually have gathered because of the feast. The gathering would be at the temple. So they are together. They have gathered at the temple. Now, in some ways, because of what will follow, in some ways that does make sense. However, on the flip side, I don't know. I don't know if they're kind of sitting together, hanging out at the temple. That doesn't exactly make sense to me either. So what I will say is some argue for a literal house. Some argue this is the temple of God. To be honest with you, I don't think we have to wrestle over that, right? Uh, that's not necessarily the point, but that is hanging there. Okay. All right. In verse two, we have this sound, the sound of this rushing mighty wind. Now, what I want you to note is this. Uh, oftentimes this happens in our, in our Bible, in our Greek Bible. Now you say our Greek Bible. Why do you say that? None of us have a Greek Bible. Well, it is the Bible, the same as your English Bible is the Bible. And what happens in the Greek Bible is sometimes in order to make a point, the author changes the word. So the normal word for sound or noise, the, no, the word that is used later on is the word phone. Right? Have you ever heard a word that sounds like phone that makes a noise? Right? I have, you know. Uh, but that's not the word he uses here. The word he uses here is different. And the word he uses here is actually very unique. It is only used four times in our entire Bible. And you know that two of those times it is used in a really unique way. Uh, one of those times it's used of a wind, of a sound, of a noise that is rushing. It's overwhelming. It overwhelms those that are hearing this Sound. The second one is used in Revelation. And the same word is used to describe a trumpet blast. So, what I want you to understand about this noise is this. It's not just this subtle... Right? This is a noise that was so great that in verse 5, it draws a crowd... And, and, and Luke describes it not just as a crowd, like, you know, 15, 20 people. No, it draws a multitude of people wherever they were, whether it's in a house in the neighborhood somewhere or they're actually at the temple. There is this crowd of people that come in. Why? Because of this noise. Verse two. 
That's why they came. The noise drew them in. And the only way that makes sense is if it's a noise like a mighty, rushing, crashing noise, like waves crashing against the surf or a trumpet blast. That noise in the middle of a neighborhood, a Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem, that might pull your attention, right? I wonder what that was. You know, they didn't have semis, right, at that time. They didn't, they didn't have semis crashing into things, and so their attention is drawn to that. This noise would have drawn them in. And that's exactly, in part, that's exactly the point of the noise. It is to pull their attention. So the third thing that we see happening with this, look at what he says. So you got this noise, it filled this whole house. And the word filled there, again, is significant in that it speaks to the, the, um, the extent of this noise. It, was, it hit everything, right? It, it, it went everywhere. It filled this house. The third one, we have the picture now of the tongues. There's this almost imagery of a physical fire. And for us, this sounds crazy. But so that we can kind of better grasp it, remember in the Old Testament, in the night, how God would lead his people. You had a pillar of cloud by day, and you had a what? Pillar of fire. What do you think that pillar of fire looked like? I don't know that too many ladies are interested in this or have ever seen one, but men, have you ever seen a flamethrower? So I want you to imagine that in the sky for a mile or two, right? Okay, so imagine that now when this rushing wind comes, you have this flame that's like shooting out of a flamethrower comes into the room. That flame separates into tiny little flames, right? and goes and stands over top of each of these individuals. Now, you say, what? Are you kidding me? Now, listen to me. This is why I'm telling you at the outset, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. We are not going to witness a loud rushing noise and fire like a flamethrower and a flame individually coming and standing over the people in this room who are filled and not standing over the ones who are not. That's not going to happen. But it did happen here. And it happened here so that the disciples, the apostles, would know God kept his promise. God did exactly what he said he would do. Now that'll be significant, more significant in a moment. But a couple of things are important. The reason the fire to being together and then separating and going and standing over the individual is this. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. It speaks to the individual filling, indwelling, or baptism of each member, of each individual that was present. Listen to me. The ministry of the Spirit is that. It is personal. It is individual. He ministers to you. And listen to me. That's why collectively we can sit here in the same room, and if we walk through the room afterwards and said, how did that message strike you? What do you need to do based on what we just talked about? You know what? We might have as many as 40 different impressions. Why? Because of that individual work of the Spirit. 
the way he convicts you and the way he convicts me, there is a subjective nature to that. It doesn't mean that God's truth is subjective. It does mean it hits us differently at times, right? It does. Because your scenario is very different than mine, and mine is very different than yours, and yours is very different even from the person sitting next to you, though it may be similar or there may be similarities. So what is important to note here is the individual connection, the individual ministry of the Spirit to each one of those present. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he describes what happens. And so they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's three things that are really, 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 really important for you to understand in that verse. Number one, they were all filled. Stop and think for a moment. What did they do to experience that filling? What did they do? Nothing. Do you realize, even in the original language, this is set in a passive voice. Passive. That means they didn't do anything. They couldn't do anything. They weren't contriving anything. They weren't making anything up. They weren't working themselves into a frenzy. And listen to me, if we're not careful at times, we can, even good people, even Bible-believing people, they will say things about the Spirit that are not true. The reality is this. This is something that God gives you. You don't work it up. You don't fight for it. You're not clawing at it. This is something God does. That's why this is passive. God did this in their lives, right? And he does it in yours if you are a genuine follower of Jesus. If you have turned in faith to Jesus, you are filled. Live like it. It's true. Live like it. The second thing that's important for us to note is verse 2, they spoke in other tongues. Now, the word tongues here is an interesting word, and it's a word that creates all kinds of chaos and potential craziness, right, depending on how we interpret this. And what he is addressing here is actual, real languages. How do we know that? Well, because down in verse 6, he says, these guys are all bewildered. Why? Because they were hearing what the followers of Jesus were saying in what? Their own language. You know what the word language there is? In the original, it's the word dialect. You ever heard of a dialect? Right? There's like 300 or something of them in the world. You know, at any one given time, they're probably growing all the time. Right? A dialect. So this is a real Known language. This is not something goofy, silly, crazy. And next week during our Q&A, I'll show you some goofy, crazy, not, not to be unkind, but I do want you to have an understanding when somebody says, I have spoken in tongues, or I do speak in tongues, or I do believe in that. I want you to see often what that means. What they describe that as. And what I want you to understand is, that's not this. That is not this. And, and we'll, this will be fleshed out a little bit more what these tongues were. But these tongues were real, known languages that were and could be understood. 
Third, at the end, look at what he says. The Spirit gave them utterance. The word utterance is not used very often. In this particular case, when it is used, the source, the source of the utterance is the Spirit of God. He is the one who is doing this. He is the one who is accomplishing this. This is not by them. This is not conjured up. This is not made up. This is not, this is what we think it would look like to be filled with the Spirit. They had no control. I think we can tell that from verse 2, the rushing wind, and verse 3, the fire that shows up. This was out of their hands. The whole scene, 2 to 4, I think makes that point pretty clearly, right? They were not in control of this, and this was not contrived by them, and it definitely was not made up, right? The Spirit is at work. Now, it's important for us to note this is tangible, real, personal They can see it in a sense, touch it, know what's happening. Why does that matter? Because as soon as just 10 days ago, chapter 1, right? Chapter 1, verse 8. On my Bible, it's just one page over. I think I threw these references up here for you. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, the beginning, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Well, this... This seems to fulfill that, right? I mean, this is unique. Certainly sounds powerful. Certainly to some extent appears to be powerful. It's going to testify to its power in a moment from these devout Jews that gather to hear this noise, right? Earlier, just before that, in chapter uh, 1, verse 5, he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says what? Not many days from now. Well, that makes sense. Ten days later. Can can you imagine the disciples thinking that through? He said it wouldn't be very many days. He said it wouldn't be very many. It's been ten days. You know, depending on their different personalities, some of them are probably drinking, sitting drinking a second, third cup of coffee, saying, hey, relax. It'll happen. Right? And the uptight ones, the ones with the calendar and agenda and to-do list, they're going, man, we got to get to this. When's this happening? When's this coming? I mean, how how much longer do we have to wait? It's been 10 days. Bam. Right? I mean, this is a visible, real fulfillment of the promise Jesus made to his followers. They couldn't miss it. And in part, that's the point. That's the point. This is a clear fulfillment of the commitment Jesus made to his followers. Now, It's critical for us to understand. This is obviously a fantastic miracle that occurs on this day, on the first day of Pentecost. And what I I want you to understand is there is this danger with the New Testament that we say, some say, well, that miracle, that should occur for us. It should look the same for us. Listen to me. When we went through Jonah a couple weeks ago, how many of you thought in your mind, for God to show me his mercy, I need to be swallowed by a fish? You didn't think that. So why would we think that with this? It is a miracle of the same proportions. 
And yet none of you thinks you need to be swallowed by a fish to see God's mercy. Right? So, so what we need to understand is that's what we're looking at here. And many times, even as you engage with people that maybe don't think the same way about this text, right? They say, well, yeah, you guys, you don't understand. No, I think, we, I, I think by God's grace, hopefully we do understand a little bit. This is not intended. It's not given as something that is to be duplicated in the church all the time, right? This is a kind of one-time deal. This is God's coming this first time. And it expresses the relationship of the Spirit to the members of the body of Jesus. Uh, This connection, if you look at it carefully, it is intimate. It is personal. And what it means for us is that the Spirit lives with you now, personally. He is with us. The second thing that's important for us to understand is this is a new model. This is a new model that impacts our redemption. Not in the sense that we are redeemed differently, but it impacts the reality that the presence of God is constantly with you and me. The presence of God is always with you. Listen, throughout Israel's history, The picture of the presence of God is the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. And you set up everybody's house around the tabernacle. Look, the presence of God is in the midst. It's different for you and me, right? God is personally with you once you are in Jesus. That's unique. So... One of the keys for us understanding the ministry of the Spirit throughout the New Testament is to understand these unique beginnings, but this is not the norm. This is not the norm. The interaction, the work of the Spirit, and some of you are going to, you know, you're going to shake in your boots when I say this. Throughout the course of Acts, it's going to change. By the time we reach the end of Acts, the ministry of the Spirit has kind of changed into this normal way. And we look at it even in the epistles. There's this normalcy, this normality to the ministry of the Spirit. There isn't this constant supernatural rushing of the power of the Spirit on us. That is not what we are talking about. And we've got to understand that. We've got to understand that. It's important that we not confuse what's going on here. And one of the things that changes is the filling of the Spirit. The way that that occurs, it looks different after Acts. And we'll talk more about that. Not today, but Lord willing, next week, all right? So Luke is emphasizing this work of the Spirit in the life of, And the ministry of Jesus, he emphasizes it throughout his gospel. Well, guess what now we have? This work and ministry of the Spirit in the life of the church, in the life of individual believers. Jesus needed the ministry of the Spirit, so do you, and you have it. If you know Jesus, you have the ministry of the Spirit at work in your life. And we need to live in light of that. So the the same Holy Spirit that comes powerfully to fill the apostles individually, to fill those disciples, those 120 individually, He is with you. If you are a believer today, He is 
in you. He indwells you right now. He fills you right now. Now, lest I jump into all of next week, let me say one, just one thing, one clarification. Some of you are sitting in your seat and you're saying, yeah, but what about when Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. That is a superb question. And what I want you to note is this. When we are engaging with a different language and trying to make sense of it in our language, sometimes it can be a little fuzzy. Do you realize that is the only time that statement occurs like that? You realize that's the only time that is said like that. Why? If being filled with the Spirit is something that is constantly supposed to be going on in our lives, we're supposed to constantly be chasing. Oh, I got to be filled with the Spirit. I got to try and catch up here, right? No, if, if that's the point, why is it never said again? Because Paul's point there is this. It's actually, you would be told if you heard a message on it, it's imperative. You must be filled. Listen to me. Do you realize, though, this is unique? It's a passive imperative. You know what that means? Here's the idea. In, in the language, in the original language, a passive imperative is almost like a proclamation. This is a reality. In the statement, what he's stating is already true. You are filled. Act like it. You are filled. Live like it. Right? And how do we know that? Well, because what does he say in verses 19 to 21 of that passage? He gives you five results. Here's the result of being filled. Fellowship. Submission. Thankful. Worship. This is what it looks like to be filled. Is that happening in your life? You're filled. Now, for some of us, we need to grow in our understanding of what that means and let him control far more than he does at times, right? We, we all struggle with that. But being filled there is not something you're chasing. It's not something you're going after. Listen to me. It is a reality. It's the truth already. And that's why it's never said over and over and over again. In all of Paul's other epistles, he never says it again. In all of Peter's epistles, he doesn't say it. In all of John's writings, he doesn't say it. Why? It's true. It's already true. It's already a reality. It's already a fact. Live in light of that fact. That's it. That's the call. So, again, hopefully, you can see how personal this is. It is a reality. It is supposed to be evident in your life. The Spirit is supposed to be changing you. The Spirit is supposed to be applying the Word to your specific struggles and sins, and by His grace, help you to be changed, transformed more into the image of Jesus. Listen to me. That's what the filling and indwelling of the Spirit is supposed to produce. Is that a reality in your life and in mine? It can be. It should be. But is it? So he goes on. Second thing. So first we've seen the power of the Spirit as he comes to the followers of Jesus, the apostles, the disciples. Now watch the impact on the multitude. Verses 5 through 13, you can kind of see this laid out. First, you have the multitude that gathers and then they respond. So Luke is first, he's going to inform us, the disciples, 
Uh, they're not the only ones that hear this rushing wind. There's also these devout Jews. They are drawn in. They, they show up to see what's going on. And all of us are like this, every single one of us, right? You've all driven by an accident on the road. And what do you do? You slow down. And if you live in Chicago, it's called a gaper's delay. Why? Because you're all gawking at it as you drive by. So everybody slows down, the traffic slows down, they report it on the radio, right? Gaper's delay. Well, that's exactly what happens here. you got these devout Jews, they're in Jerusalem, they hear this rushing noise, they're saying, man, what was that? What is going on? And this multitude gathers. Now, the way that Luke describes them in verse 5 is really, really interesting. Devout men from every nation under heaven. But they are dwelling in Jerusalem. So what is Luke saying? A couple of things are, are really, really interesting here. So very, very likely what is going on is we have Jews who because of the captivity of the foreign nations for the past 500 years, we have Jews living in other regions. As the Roman Empire, in a sense, opened things up, some of these Jews who have lived, born in, raised in other regions, they've come home. They've come home to Jerusalem. They are devout, so they want to live in Jerusalem. They want to be near the temple, so they have moved back to Jerusalem. But they actually are pretty good at speaking Liberian. Right? Or they're pretty good at speaking Aramaic because they're from Rome and that's where they grew up. Right? And that's where the languages will come into play. So, so look at what he says in verse 6. He goes on, he says, and at the sound, see this is that different word. This is the word phone. This is the different word for sound. At the sound, the multitude, they came together and they were bewildered. They are just overwhelmed. They don't understand this. Why? Because as they come together, all of these disciples, they're talking. They're speaking. They're saying something. What are they saying? We'll get to that in a minute. But they're talking. And as they're talking, each of these men, each of these individuals, they are hearing them. How? In his own dialect in his own language. So let's say I grew up down near Egypt or I grew up out near modern day Turkey. I'm now in Jerusalem. That language I'm not used to hearing in Jerusalem. Now I'm hearing that language. And the group is overwhelmed by this. Why? Well, look at what he says in verse seven. What's going on? They say, they're amazed and astonished. And you'll notice in this passage, five words like that are used. Bewildered, amazed, astonished. Down to verse 12, amazed, perplexed. This whole scenario is pretty amazing and overwhelming, right? And that's what Luke's communicating to us. And they're amazed and astonished. Why? Because aren't all these guys speaking from Galilee? Aren't these all Galileans? They can look at them. They know they're all from Galilee. Galilee is not in Jerusalem. Remember, Galilee is the area north of Jerusalem, several miles, right? They would have to come down, maybe as much of a day's journey, a walk to get to Jerusalem for the feast. And they look at all them and they say, you guys are, essentially, you guys are locals. You, you guys are from Israel. You guys didn't grow up in other places. 
How are we hearing you talk in the place where we were born and raised and have since moved back? You're not from there. What's going on? This is why they're astonished. This is why they're amazed. This is why they're completely overwhelmed by this. Verse 8, he goes on. Or verse 9, excuse me. No, I'm sorry. Verse 8, he says, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, again, this is the conundrum for them. And what Luke is going to now do is he's going to list where they've come from. Now, initially, when we read those words, we think in our minds, what, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, sure, he's from Phrygia. What is that? Where is Phrygia? You know what I'm saying? Where is Pamphylia? Where is Libya? Where, where are we talking about? All right, good question. All right, so here's what we're talking about. Some of them say Media, Parthia, Mesopotamia, Elam, Judea, which would be close to home which that's one thing the commentators have a lot of fun with. What, why, why did Luke lay these out the way he did and he throws Judea right in the middle? I don't know. You know what I mean? The point is, I think for Luke, he's saying, look at all the places they come from. Pontus, Cappadocia, Phrygia, Asia, Crete, Pamphylia, Rome. Remember Rome? Right? Uh, Cyrene, Libya, Egypt. So look at the scope. So you have all of these people from all of these places and they're hearing, I grew up in Cyrene, but I'm understanding that guy from Galilee as he speaks Cyrenian, or however you can say that, right? Or Libyan, or Egyptian, or Arabic. How is that? What is going on? This is the supernatural work of God in the coming of the Spirit. Now, Peter's going to explain this in a minute. Peter's going to kind of flesh out what's going on. And as Peter fleshes out what's going on, it's going to create the opportunity for devout Jews to connect the dots from the Old Testament to Jesus. And that's exactly where Peter finishes. Peter finishes, if you look down at verse 21, he says, and this is the end of Joel, the prophecy in Joel, he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But everybody hearing that from Joel, they're saying the name of the Lord is who? This is Yahweh of the Old Testament. So Peter doesn't stop there. He goes all the way to verse 36. And in verse 36, what does he say? He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God, Yahweh, has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Listen to me. Christ for us means one thing. Christ for them meant Messiah. God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, you killed the Messiah. Now, in some respects, I don't know about you, but depending on your background, again, your perceptions, you would think that Paul or that Peter would finish with a clear Romans road explanation of the gospel. He doesn't. Peter literally finishes with this. Don't 
miss this reality. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And you killed him. You killed him. But God says he's Lord and Messiah. You you have to do something with that. Right? This is where Peter's going to bring the audience before he's done. Now, back to our text. So they're perplexed. They're overwhelmed. Verse 12. There's there's Jews. There's proselytes. I think proselytes are those who have become proselytes of Judaism, not necessarily of Christianity. I don't think that's where we are yet. These are proselytes of Judaism. And there was a whole process by which you could become part of the uh, Jewish a community of faith, even then. It, it existed in the Old Testament. Mishnah addresses it. I mean, this, this was a real thing, a real reality. That's why the baptism of John is not foreign to the Jews. For some of them, they may have been identifying this as sinners who need to become proselytes of Judaism. So I think that's who we're talking about, these, these Cretans and Jews and proselytes and um, the Arabians And he goes down and he says, and we all hear them telling in our own tongues, what are they saying? Now, oftentimes when we look at Acts 2 and what they are saying in tongues, our impression, our interpretation is they are giving the gospel. They are stating the gospel. And here's the truth. I don't know that they are. And the only reason, or at least not the way we think of it. And the only reason I say that is this. What does Luke tell us they were saying? What is it that they were hearing? The mighty works of God. They are declaring the mighty acts of God. Now, do you think those mighty acts might have had something to do with being witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, this is the, one of, we, we could argue among humanity, one of the mightiest works of God. The raising of Jesus. And throughout the epistles, God is credited with that. Jesus is credited with that. The Spirit is credited with that. You see the involvement of the Trinity in the resurrection of Jesus. But likely that's one of the mighty works that they're declaring to these people. God raised him from the dead. And he's alive right now. He has ascended into his glory. He is back in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now that would have been shocking, especially to hear it in your own Arabian tongue or your own Cretan tongue or your own uh, Libyan tongue. Or You see what I'm saying? All of those. It would have been shocking to hear that in Aramaic or Greek, right? So again, where are they? Verse 12, they're amazed. They're perplexed. They're having trouble processing what they're witnessing. This is, it's blowing their minds which is why Peter's going to have to come along and explain this in the middle section of chapter 2, verse 13. There aren't just those who are interested and perplexed, though. They're skeptics. Look at what the skeptics say. But others mocking, or the idea is heckling or being skeptical. They said what? Man, these guys are all filled with new wine. These guys have already been drinking, and it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. That's literally what the skeptics say. And with that skeptical perception that gets thrown out there, Peter steps up in essence 
and delivers this message. Verses 14 to 36, where in some respects he explains, and yet in another respect he does not. Peter does not immediately go to, again, a Romans road explanation of the gospel. What do the people say when they finish? When Peter's done talking, what do the people say? What do we do? Peter, based on what you just said, what should we do? To which Peter then responds, repent and be baptized. You see? Peter doesn't bring them to that place. Peter doesn't say, hey, look, listen, listen, all you've got to do, all you guys got, Peter never says that. Peter doesn't walk them through this nice, neat little package and say, no, Peter actually connects for them the meaning of Messiah in the Old Testament, even the connection of the day of the Lord, which has not yet been fulfilled. Joel 2, it's it's not all fulfilled here. We'll see that in verses 17 to 21. It's not all fulfilled here. But it starts to be. It starts to be. And the response is absolutely mind-boggling because it is the work of God. And sometimes, folks, listen. I do believe at times, for us as believers, we are so intent on getting the result that our efforts at times are contrived. We are working. We are, are pressing. We are, are pushing. We're trying to make this happen. I, you know, whatever I got to do, I'm going to make this happen. What's amazing is when God is at work. That didn't, that didn't happen. In all of chapter 2, this is just the work of God. And it's amazing. And this is what I've told us as a church over and over and over and over and over again. Don't you want to be part of something like that? Don't you want to be part of something that you can pull back from like you can in Acts 2 and say, that was God. That's the only way that can work. None of us can take credit for that. It's just not possible. I'm not that capable. You're not that capable. We, We can't do this. But look at what God did. Man, I long to see that, don't you? And this is what this 120 disciples, followers of Jesus, this is what they experienced in chapter 2. Now, one of the things that's important for us to grasp is how does this connect to us? What, What do we do with this in 2023? That's one of the hardest things, and that's really one of the struggles. That's where people kind of go sideways with the the book of Acts. What do we do with this? This is why sometimes the church goes through a book of Acts and they start five new programs to try and fulfill what's going on in the book of Acts. Folks, that's not the point. Truly, that's not the point. So what do we do with this? How do we transition this today? I hope first that you can understand and that it's clear to you That we are not going to experience some of these miraculous pieces. This loud rushing wind. A visible, whatever it looked like. A visible expression of the Spirit of God. Filling us for the first time. Baptizing them. These occurrences are unique to Acts. 
Acts truly, it's a history of these foundational works of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the ongoing work of Jesus and his followers. So throughout this account, what we're going to witness is this. Over and over again, we're going to witness transformed lives. Now, I want you to think for a moment in the irony, in some ways, of the placement of Acts and the book of John. In in John, at the end of John 21, where, where do we find Peter? What's going on with Peter? He's at the beach. He is fishing. And he has left following Jesus. Why? Because he denied him. In that moment for Peter, that was the most critical of moments to stand with Jesus. He denied him. And so now where is he? I'm nowhere. I can't do this. I can't follow him. I can't be what I'm supposed to be. The rock that he calls me back in Matthew 18, that's not going to happen. And Jesus meets Peter where he is. And he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I do. You know I do. You know I messed up. And Jesus says what? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Three times he asked him that question. And whatever happened, whatever's going on there between Jesus and Peter, literally two chapters later, We have Peter standing in front of, we must assume, a really large group of people, right? I mean, if 3,000 respond, this was was quite a group. Two chapters later. You know what we'll witness over and over and over again throughout Acts, through the power of the Spirit, is transformed lives. And here's the truth today. For many of us, Oftentimes, when we think about the Spirit of God, we're thinking about something crazy and and out of this world, right? When we think of the Spirit of God. No, listen to me. The work of the Spirit of God is the same. Transformed lives. That's the goal. Transformed living. And folks, many times the danger for us is that we make the ministry of the Spirit something outside of that. We make the ministry of the Spirit something supernatural. I'm going to have this power. I'm going to feel something as I go to do this ministry or maybe as I try and witness for Jesus. I'm I'm going to feel something. No, listen to me. What you need is to be transformed. And in truth today, in truth, the thing we press back on the most is being transformed. For most of us, we're terrified to be transformed. I don't want to change. I don't want to be different. I don't know that I want to be more passionate about God or serving others. I don't know if I want that. I don't know if I want to come out of my comfort spot. Right? I mean, let's be honest. And what I want to demonstrate to you in one final slide, I want to show you. I want you to consider for a moment the power of God, the power of the Spirit of God to transform a person from the fruits of the flesh to the fruits of the Spirit. Look at this. And this is in our epistles, Galatians 5. You know the passage well. Look at the fleshly actions. Hatred. Compare that to the bottom one. Spirit of power actions. Love. Listen to me. That's transformation. You don't go from hating to loving naturally. It's not natural. Right? Just not. Look at the next one. Discord. Joy. 
Have you ever met somebody that sows discord that's happy? No, you're giggling because you haven't. It's ridiculous. People that sow discord are miserable. Joy. That's transformation. Look, look, look at this one. Jealousy. Why are you jealous? Why would somebody be jealous? Because they don't have any peace in who they are and where they are. There's no peace. Right? Look at the next one. Fits of rage. Why do we have fits of rage? Why do we lose our temper? Why do we get angry? Because we struggle to forbear with others. Right? You see? Look at the next one. Self-ambition. Kindness. Folks, that's transformation. And listen to me. That is the work that the Spirit of God is still doing today if you'll let Him. Part of the ministry of the Spirit is for you and I to engage the Word in such a way that we will yield. So many times as people engage the ministry of the Spirit, they are looking at times for this secret, this unique, special response. Listen to me. You want to know the secret to the Spirit? Obey. That's it. Obey. As the Spirit of God works and convicts in your heart, listen and obey. Follow, yield, submit. That's the key. There isn't this touchy, feely, weird, crazy. No, obey. Obey. And God will, by His grace, transform you to look like that rather than that. And for all of us, that's our need. We need to be shaped by the Word and the Spirit as He applies the Word to our lives. Is that a reality for you? If it's not, it can be by His grace. It will never be a reality for you if you have never turned in faith to Jesus. Turned and acknowledged Jesus alone can be, is my Savior. He's the only hope I have. I must call out to Him. I want you to rescue me of my sin. Repent. Admit that you need Him and He alone can save you. Will you, by God's grace, respond in that way? We need help. We need help to do that today.